Welcome to Mac and Cheese Music Podcast with your hosts, Brian DeHart. Ever wonder who the mystery guy is behind that voice? Why don't you introduce yourself, voice? My name is Bruno. Bruno's been a co-collaborator of mine since the very beginning of these podcasts. Eddie's quite adept at disseminating great information. Hey, baby. This is my best Barry White. Come on, Bruno. I couldn't have done any of this without you. Don't sell yourself short, Brian. You're a tremendous slouch. Speaking of non-slouches, today's podcast guest is Guy Staley, owner of Free Electron Media. Hey, babe. Rust never sleeps. Diversity is key in this world of ours. Let's go down the list here. Guy is an audio engineer and digital imaging technician. On top of that, director of photography, camera operator, first assistant camera, gaffer, editor, producer, sound designer, writer, let's not forget screenwriter, as well as a pianist and drummer. Wow, what else can Kai do? He fixes the cable? Today's music tracks were all produced and engineered by Guy. All right, take it away, man. Have fun storming the studio. Get it right out there. I can hear you better now. All right, right on. DJ style. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, Mac and Cheese Music Podcast here. Today's guest is Guy Staley. Um... Guy owns Free Electron Studios. You're still under that name. Yep, that's All it. Right, that's All right. right. Uh, well, the, actually, the 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 umbrella name is Free Electron Media. So, oh, fr- uh, I do I do several things, but uh, so studio is one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I do I do a number of sort of post production. It's basically kind of a post production suite. So yeah, you've got a you've got a ton of accolades here as far as the stuff that you do. Um, so I'm just going to start with your your list. So first of all, you do audio engineering. Yeah, that's that's probably what I've been doing the longest. I'm I'm uh, got my first job in '91 as a job. recording engineer, um, and then I you know do a fair amount of live live sound as well. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Your own company, or are you are you free? Yeah, it's just yeah, it's it's just me. Me, okay. myself, and I. So I got a, I got I got a lot of questions for you here. So first of all, you are a director of photography. Yep. Editor, producer, both being audio and visual, correct? Uh, the producer credit is really more about audio. So okay. yeah, I've, I've I've done a fair amount of uh, producing of of solo artists and bands. And you're a writer, both musically and as far as doing videos and movies. Uh, yeah, I um I, I dabble in screenwriting, so yeah, I, I have a few scripts that if you know that I'd I'd like to shop if anybody's interested. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. That, I, you know, who knows, man? I've always wondered what is a gaffer. Oh, the gaffer is the person that basically is in charge of all the lighting. Oh. So, so um, in the camera department, you have the director of photography who is the chief in charge of the camera department. And then directly under the director of photography is the gaffer. And basically, the gaffer executes the director of photography's vision as far as lighting the scene goes. And then on the other hand, you've been the director of photography. Yeah, lighting, uh, photography is really all about light. So that's kind of why I do a lot of gaffing because... It, it affords me the opportunity to work with a lot of directors of photography, uh-huh. so I get to learn a lot from them, and I just enjoy lighting because, like, if a, if a scene is well lit, basically you can point the camera anywhere and it's going to look good, you know, if you do it right. Speaking of lighting, I had uh, seen Blade Runner again for the first time in like decades. Oh, the original. I, the Blade original, Runner, uh-huh. and I was stunned by Ridley Scott's lighting they had the lighting in that movie is absolutely just yeah that that movie still holds water in that department it's it's visually stunning yeah oh uh, the the whole movie holds water it's just like I had forgotten the end it had been so long in fact Uh I had forgotten the whole thing I just remember when I saw it was it like 86 or 87 they came out when I saw it I loved it back then but it's I mean it's probably been 30 years since I've seen yeah, it. Yeah, I think I saw it maybe within the last five years or so. I mean, have you seen the, the 2049, the, the new the new one? Yeah, everybody raves about it. I was like, I I didn't like it. Uh, yeah, I, that, I, that seems to be, there's two camps on the on the, on the the new one. It's like either people love it or they, they don't really like it. Sometimes it, it's easy to go in and you have some expectation based on, on the, you know, the earlier film. You know, and well, that's I think what my expectation was. Yeah, it was yeah, the earlier film. Yeah. 
is basing it off that. But now that I've actually refreshed myself, and I've, I, I, you know, I, my memories were always riding on emotions on that movie. But now that I've, I've got a little more maybe objective, objectivity after seeing it again, maybe I'll go back and check out Twenty Forty Nine and see what that. See what it does for me. You know, yeah, I just like recently checked out some movies that I the first time I saw them was like I was pretty lukewarm on, but then like a lot of people that I, I really admire and respect their opinions said, dude, that's a great movie. You should check it out again. I go back and I check it out. It's like, well, actually, that was a pretty good movie, you know? So I don't know. Mindset has a lot to do with it at the time when you watch a movie. And, and once again, I think expectations. So these days, like, like the movies I usually enjoy the most are the ones that I don't know anything about. Like, I haven't seen a trailer, you know, like, I, like nobody's gave me a synopsis. Like, I know nothing about it. And I find that that's really the best way to really enjoy a movie is when you have zero expectations. Well, the the movie that I had zero expectations with when I first saw it was The Big Lebowski, and I I was just like one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. my, mine too. But I was like the first time I was like, this is a good movie. <laughs> what is this? Second time I chuckled. Third time, you know, I was intrigued to side ripping laughs. I, right? just, I know <laughs> yeah, guttural laughter. It is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that I, is. The, the team on that is like the Coen brothers, yeah, yeah. some of the best in the business yeah. as far as the writing goes so you know um I, i'm a big Coen brothers fan so they also did uh no country for old men one of my favorite movies yeah what a departure from yeah. big lebowski Holy well God. yeah they're kind of all over the place for sure well, yeah. yeah stuff is brilliant so guy uh obviously your background is huge and varied so what got you started in all of this um, I just was grew up in music, you know, um, we had a piano in the house and like when I was five, I was like plunking out melodies that I heard on TV and my mom like, oh. so, oh, a prodigy, which <laughs> I'm certainly not, you know, but she put me on piano lessons like in kindergarten. So I just, I was thrust into it. Um, so yeah, I just, like, I started studying music when I was like six years old. So okay. And, that, and, that's how I got into the, it. it was, you started less, lessons then at that yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously you probably had a good teacher. Um, Miss Cedarholm, I mean, I don't, I don't really remember her other than that she was really old. You yeah, know, you like, can remember her name. So yeah. Because she's got legacy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that, that's one of those names that you remember, but, um, I mean, I just remember that she seemed really old to me when I was six. She was probably my age. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she seemed ancient yeah, yeah, to yeah. me as a six-year-old, though. <laughs> but yeah, so I, you know, I took piano lessons all through grade school, and um, at one point, I just like I, I burned out on like having to practice every day. And I yeah. asked my mom, "Hey, can I just like take a break from the piano for a little while?" And she, you know, she wasn't gonna like force me. Uh, to take piano lessons and so she said that was fine and I was in fifth grade the uh, junior high school uh, stage band came to the our elementary school and they played a concert and the drummer he had a um a, a bonham orange clear acrylic Ludwig drum kit <laughs> and he did a drum solo and yeah. I was just okay I want to do that and, and, and you're still playing right? and, and yeah. so yeah and so like that became my instrument and so yeah I was a, a drummer all up and in, up into college and in college I kind of switched back to piano I um in, in fact yeah I had a I had a band with Ritz you know oh okay that's um, right yeah, yeah yeah you and Eric go back a ways yeah um we met in college at Shoreline Community College and I think he was a music major I had already done a music major at North Seattle Community College for mm -hmm. a couple of years got an associate's degree in music and I was doing studying music technology at Shoreline got it um and so that's what got me into the I actually originally um got into the music technology program because I, I wanted to like get into film um scoring Right, and I thought, well, you know, like Better maybe get back a, to the piano. Maybe a stu the studio <laughs> yeah. might be a way for me to right. like, uh, you know, get my foot in the door. Um, and I just discovered I had a real aptitude for it, um, and so I just kind of switched my focus from music to music technology, and and was and became a pretty serious like um, audio engineer uh, for you know for a long time, and to this day, yeah, I'm still still a pretty serious audio engineer. Although over the last decade, I've you know, as you as you know, I branched off into film work. So right, right. So right now, uh, I've I personally feel that continuing education is key to survival, 
uh, and also success. So you, you've gone back and you're doing some continuing education currently? Oh, yeah. I'm just, just learning software skills. Um, so like I told you, I've been taking some, a class over the last couple of weeks. It's um, DaVinci Resolve. Um, so it's like post-production software. Right. I, I, I mainly am I'm using it for doing color work. So that's that's kind of like a focus of mine right now is doing, doing color work. So I'm about to start on a feature film, coloring a feature film. I did a feature film last year. And the features are kind of hard to land. So, but I've done a bunch of color work on like shorts and stuff. But um, so I'm just getting. I've been in talks with the director for I don't know a few months now, and and I I, I more or less landed the gig. And so we're going right to get on. started on this film um, in a couple of weeks. So. Oh, so then it's going to be pedal to the metal. Yeah, and so I'm just sort of boning up, right, <laughs> boning right. up, so I don't put my foot in my mouth. Well, one of the things I like to talk about is that you know I'm. Just because I'm a Mac guy, I got a Final Cut Pro, right? And, uh, it's, yeah. and, and I love it when when I have. But you're time. actually recording in a Pro Tools, right? Uh, of now. course, yeah, <laughs> that's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I I love it in in that it, you know I also use Logic on my on my uh, laptop, and uh, the two integrate really really well. But I've mm. t I've taken a look at DaVinci. So what do you, I, obviously you you know both platforms. Do you find that DaVinci is superior to the Final Cut Pro? Um, I really haven't used Final Cut much. Um, I come from uh, Premiere, so like okay. um, I I've been on Adobe products since right. like the mid '90s or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I was like working in um, Adobe Premiere for many years. But I got into the Resolve because of the color uh, for the color side of okay. things. It really is a, a full-fledged... So, I mean, like, I still have a subscription, an Adobe subscription, only because I kind of have to because people still work in Premiere. And, and, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff. You know, I'm a photographer, so, like, Photoshop and Lightroom, I use those, those apps. So, like, I'm still on the Adobe platform, but as far as on the film side of things, I've completely switched over to Resolve because I just love the interface. I just love how smoothly you can go from aspect to aspect of post-production because i mean it's a full-fledged um video editor um audio mixing and editing color work vfx platform i mean it it covers all of them and it's none of them are a compromise i'm pretty all over all over resolve these days um they offer free training every year and these are like intensive courses it's like four hours a day five days for you know five days straight for each sort of section for the editing page and for the color page and for the fusion fusion is the the vfx page and fairlight the fairlight page is the audio page so okay so i'm not ready to dump pro tools yet i mean i've been on pro tools since um of 2001 yeah i have a i have a lot of money invested into pro tools so yeah um but you know like i am doing a fairlight course in a couple of weeks um so we'll see I've dabbled in there and it seems pretty okay to me. I use all the same hardware that I'm using with my Avid setup. We'll see what happens when I when I really dive into Fairlight here in a couple of weeks. I don't suspect I'm gonna be like switching over. I don't at, think you're gonna have to. Uh, I mean, I've been on Pro Tools for so long that I just know it like the back of my hand. And, right. What I found great about Avid is that finally, what was it like 10 years ago, they were getting open to integrating with other uh, Yes, other yeah. Well, you know, they're for sale right now. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, like Avid, the whole company. The, the whole is, deal. The, huh? Is for sale, the, yeah. The whole bebop shabop. Um, because, I mean, they have a pretty serious um, editing platform as mm -hmm. well. Um, Media Composer mm -hmm. is, I mean, um, Avid Systems were the very first nonlinear editors on the market. Yeah, back that. in the like mid mid nineties, they they introduced, uh, and then Adobe came out, and then Apple introduced um, Final Cut Pro not long after Adobe came out. But Avid was the very first nonlinear editing system, and the systems were hella expensive. I mean, you know, right. hundreds of thousands of right. dollars to get in because it was a hardware only uh, kind of setup, and which is that's the same Pro Tools legacy follows from that i mean obviously digit design wasn't part of avid avid bought right. digit design i don't know about 15 years ago or yeah, something when now. i first got involved it was digit design digit design was the same it was the i mean basically they sold hardware the software was just part of the package and then as you noted like at one point they sort of they split out made it so that you could use their software with other hardware you didn't have to necessarily use digit design hardware hence my x32 over there yeah I, I mix on an M32 okay. like, all the time. Okay. Um, and I, I fucking love it, man. 
Well, uh, you, yeah, you, it's you basically know, the same console. I mean, the, yeah, right. You know Terry Gottlieb, right? Yeah. Well, uh, Terry told me that uh, when when I bought this, he was he still an American? He probably just about owns it now, doesn't he? I think he's kind of retired. Oh, okay, probably. Yeah, he's I pretty, never seen him there over there. Yeah. Well, he told me that you know he has with his sound company, he has both X32s and the Midas companion to that. Yeah, on the, the M32. Road. Yeah. He said the X32s never break down the Midas's because they're so high quality and sensitive. He's had to have them in the shop okay. repeatedly. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because the Midas that I work on, we did have to send it send it back after about a year. Uh, the head, it was just a, it was a minor issue, but it, you know, it wasn't right. The headphones it was like the headphone amp like crapped out and like one side was. 60 dB louder than the other. Right? <laughs> okay. Just like the ergonomics of the console itself um, and the sound, like the the um, the plugins, all of the reverb processing, the the compressors, EQs, everything. I mean, it just sounds killer to me. happy that you showed up here today because I can appreciate the fact that you have the you have your inner gear geek inside. Oh yeah, I mean I'm an audience, I'm a recording engineer. I mean it kind of goes with the territory, man. I, I, I spent way more money than I'm willing to admit on, on equipment and you know as we were talking a little while ago when I sold my sold off basically bowed out of the studio I was I had down in Pioneer Square. I, I sold off a bunch of crap. I don't need all this for what I'm doing. Yeah, honestly, I mostly work in the box. Oh, yeah, I, I, and I totally get it. I saw the console in the pictures. What was the console you were working off of? Oh, um, that was a the Trident guy. Um, oh, okay. Uh, what's, his, what's his name? Um, at one point, he parted ways with Trident and um, started his own company. And sweet little console. They make great consoles. I mean, just fantastic sounding analog consoles. Yeah. Malcolm Toft. Okay. So it was a top. The console's called a top. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. So yeah, he was one of the original Trident guys. So um, yeah. Anyway, those top consoles are just they're just killer. They're they're not even like super expensive, you know. I mean, but they're pretty bare bones. They're not like an SSL with like crazy routing. I mean, it's they're they're just like a real simple split split console design, but with just killer electronics, super clean. So let's talk about the, the new iteration of free electron media. What are your goals and what are you, what are you doing with that? Uh, so I just uh, finished basically getting set up for, for mixing in Atmos. Um, we'll talk about that. Yeah. So like that's kind of on the audio side, that's my focus right now is like is mixing in Atmos. So which is both, uh, I mean, Atmos started as a surround format for film mixing, okay. which was initially why I wanted to, to get into it. But I don't know, about maybe three or four years ago now, Atmos for Music became a thing. Apple started essentially releasing Atmos Music on their platform. And now it's there's like several platforms that release stuff in Atmos. The thing that's cool about Atmos is that it's, it's scalable. It's adaptive technology. So if you have two speakers or if you have 20 speakers, it intelligently adapts to the system that you have on hand. And so that's kind of the hallmark of it. So it basically has its own onboard AI. Exactly. The, yeah. the, the Atmos algorithm. So you have to have a receiver that's that's built to, to decode mm -hmm. Atmos. Yeah. So it travels with metadata. The program, the audio program travels with metadata that tells the, the decoder how to decode 
the metadata and spread the spread the sound around. But so on the audio side, that's kind of my what I'm focusing on right now is Atmos for music and film. The studio itself, I'm I'm doing post production in general, so right. um, on audio and video. So that incorp- incorporates video editing, uh, like I said, color work, you know, mixing mixing sound for picture, uh, sound design, you know, all, all of those aspects of post audio production for film and music. Well, from my perspective, the Atmos application really works well with your brain because you're you already are into lighting, and so applying the aspects of lighting into sound. Huh, I hadn't of, thought about it. Like oh, it's that. a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it does sort of apply. Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of like it's a funny thing. Like the first job I got at a studio, um, I don't know if you know the name Buck Armsby. He was the bass player in a very famous Northwest band called the Fabulous Whalers. And he played, uh, he was the bass player for Junior Cadillac for wow. a long, long time. Long, long and, time. But he passed away, I don't know, about five years ago now, maybe okay. seven years ago, 2015, something like that. Okay. But uh, he had built a studio in the U District. You know, he'd been a producer and a musician for decades, but like he wasn't an engineer. And so I had just graduated from, from school as an engineer, uh-huh. um, as a recording engineer, and we had a mutual friend, and so like I just I I ended up as the chief engineer at his studio. Wow, how um, long was that gig? Um, I was there for ten years. That's substantial. Um, and so anyway, my very first job with him was um, basically remastering. He had a, a record label called Etiquette Records, and they had all of these early Northwest bands: the Sonics, the Galaxies. Uh, the Fabulous Whalers, Merrily Rush. Right. Um, That's going the, back. Like, they were all under the etiquette label. Huh. And so he had, like, a early version of Pro Tools. Back then it was called Sound Tools, and it was just two-channel, two-channel digital, nonlinear digital mixing and editing. People were using it to, to master, to do digital mastering. Makes and so, sense. And so I was going in and cleaning up all of these old masters. And so that was, like, my first... My first gig out of school, um, and but he had a couple of record labels. Um, he had built this studio specifically to be able to produce the artists on his labels. So he had a country label. My first like three years out of school, I did nothing but record and mix country, country music because he had a country label. God bless you, man. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't know what the original question was, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that was kind of how I got got into the oh, um, what I was going to say was like probably a year after I started working there, he brought in an intern and this guy's name was Martin Charlebois and he was uh, from Quebec, Canada, and he had just moved to Seattle and he was a musician and we just like hit it off immediately. And we were both kind of interested in getting into film, like like just filmmaking, just for fun. And so we started making like Super 8 films and stuff together. And so that's how I, I sort of like almost immediately after getting hired as an audio engineer, like started Your skewing interest, over right? into, into film filmmaking, just right. but mostly just as for fun, something fun to do. But then, I, you know, I kind of got serious about it. I was like, wow. Like I got interested in cinematography and stuff. And so I started really ardently studying cinematography on my own we continued to make some films and stuff and i uh, you know eventually went to school for photography while at the same time still working you know primarily working in music production and recording and mixing and producing music those two worlds just sort of came together for me about 15 years ago this is like early 90s mid 90s this is uh, be uh my fr- yeah it was 91 is when i got hired at buck's place and then it was probably 92 or 93 that i met martin and then we we're, you know, working on film projects all through the 90s together. So I know how I clean up audio these days. How did you do it like 20 years ago? I mean, um, the tools were very rudimentary. Um, there was a program called Cedar. I don't remember. It was, it was an acronym that, acronym that st- stood for something. That, mm-hmm. But um, that was like one of the first. And that they, they've evolved. And that program was bought by a company. That, anyway, so yeah. it was early like forensic audio okay. software. Um, yeah, really designed. You have to find for, the perpetrator of the crime, right? Uh, yeah, forensic. honestly designed for cleaning up audio that for forensic purposes. Right. Um, there was that, and basically it was the it was just like using EQ and stuff and um, the pencil icon. So oh right, the, yeah. the, the thing about the etiquette thing was a bunch of the 
original masters were lost in a fire. And so I was remastering stuff off of albums. Oh, okay. So, so we were wow. digitally encoding right. record albums, and then I was going in and removing the pops, all the clicks yeah. and pops and yeah. stuff by hand with, wow. the, with, the, with the pencil uh, tool in Pro Tool in, um, in Sound Designer. Wow. Uh, I mean, uh, sorry, in Sound Tools is what it was called, which became Pro Tools. Right. About, I don't know, probably three or four years later, Pro Tools came out with... Um, a 16-track version. Oh, and there was another program called Deck, and I don't know if that if they're still around. I, I kind of doubt it, but around 92, 93, Deck landed. Of course, uh, Digital Performer, you could record audio into Digital Performer. There's a bunch of companies all like making inroads towards multi-track digital, non-linear multi-track digital recording. And this company, I don't remember who it was, but they, they introduced this program called Deck, um, and it was basically an old-school Fostex like four track cassette recorder, except it was digital. You was, could do was it is that a four track dat tape? Uh, no, it was no, it was nonlinear. It was okay, like okay. direct to hard disk. Okay. Yeah. But the thing is it was digital, so you could like like you used to do with the old cassette recorders, you would bounce or, or even the reel to reel machines, you would you know, you record right. on the three tracks and you bounce That's that it. down to one and right. then you have three more tracks available and then you could bounce the bounce track plus two more right. down, you know, and ad infinitum. And of course, on tape, you can only do that a few times. A few times, that's right. Um, but with the digital, you could do it as many times oh, as you right. wanted. That makes sense. Right. Um, and the thing was, is they they made it the deck program made it so that you could do a virtual bounce to stereo. So you could fill all four tracks and do a virtual bounce to stereo, and then bring that in as two tracks, two of the four, huh. and then you know overdub two tracks, bounce that down to a stereo pair bring that back in so i did like a couple of albums that were like full fully produced um out you know multi-track albums on this four track digital recorder and, um now did you have a computer screen to, that you would work off of yeah it was okay yeah, yeah, okay, yeah so it was yeah, fully integrated yeah okay yeah, yeah it was like just like what pro tools is now but it was four tracks right you know, with very limited you know, processing. Because I know. could just see it squinting on the little screen of the, the hard drive. Yeah, no, no, it was a, it was computer-based non-linear right. recorder, yeah. But it was like the very first multi-track. I'm pretty sure it was the very first, like, multi-track audio-dedicated uh, non-linear recorder. And it wasn't long after that that everybody jumped on, on that. I mean, obviously, everybody was working towards that at that time, early 90s. Everybody was working towards uh, non-linear editing um, right. on, in both audio and video. Right. And so uh, I guess it was about 95 or 96 that Pro Tools emerged, and they it was a 16-track recorder. And I remember clearly when that happened. And, it, like, I went down to, what was it called down there? Um, anyway, it was like, uh, like the first real pro audio studio-focused dealer in Seattle. They were catering to recording studios in Seattle, which there weren't. A, I mean, there was a few big studios, right. but at that time, you know, smaller studios, it was, it was like an up-and-coming thing because the technology was evolving to the point right. where it, it became affordable. Yeah, yeah, it became affordable for people to actually set studios up in their homes and stuff, and it, it wouldn't cost a million dollars. Still pretty expensive. Yeah, it was a hundred grand instead of a million. <laughs> it's <you know>? reasonable. <laughs> anyway, that's that's yeah. that was my like my first gig was at, at Buck Studio, and he had a sixteen track multi. He had a a half inch that that very first Fostex half inch sixteen track the machine. G sixteen Fostex. That's the one. That used to be one. It had Dolby here. SR. Yeah, um, fully MIDI, MIDI capable. <laughs> Today, 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 today
school, I had learned on, you know, two-inch tape, like that, right. you know, the digital wasn't a thing, although they had a sound tools set up at the school. I went to the recording workshop is where I kind of finished school, and it's like what they call an immersion school, and you go and you live on campus, and it's it's like eight hours of like textbook stuff during the day. You get a like a dinner break and then you go from six until two in the morning and you go, they have like uh, a half a dozen like full on world world class recording studios on the campus where you would go and bands would get on a list to come in and record for free. Wow, um, how and, cool is that? Um, yeah, and so I mean the competition to get in there for free recordings was pretty stiff so like- Bands were good. They were good bands, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so you got to do like full on recording. And so, but it was like, it was pretty, pretty grueling. It was like you had the weekends off and so everybody would just party like okay, crazy on yeah. the weekend. Cause everybody, it was in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. Um, you were just <laughs> surrounded by, by cow fields and farmland and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they had like housing on campus. You, you, there was like three tiers that you could choose from. There was the shared cabins which is what I did for the first part of it. And then later on I switched to, then you had like shared motel rooms. So they had a, a motel a couple miles down the street that they, you know, that they had bought and that they were using for housing. Um, and then they had like two or three houses, like full on houses that were shared housing. And, and so that's where the parties were. Right. Um, so they, we'd have big house parties on the weekend. Um, I bet you were hot to get out of the dorm situation though. Jeez. Um, no, actually I have to say, I really, I really dug it. Um, there were little cabins and there was four people to a cabin. Um, and you really got to know your, your cabin mates and we'd all like, like work on homework together and drill each other. And I I actually, the cabins were pretty fun. Hmm. But I got to say, man, that school was like probably some of the funnest time of my life just because you just completely lived recording. That's it's like you were it wasn't like going to college where you'd be studying. You know, you have like an undergraduate program where you had to take math and liberal arts and social science. It was just all you were doing was like music, recording music. It's um, a dream come true. That it, it really was. Yeah. Um, Anyway, a lot of like famous engineers uh, have come out of that program. You had created or you had developed the taste for video when you were working with Buck. So how was the... What was it the wasn't tra- video, though. It was film. We were shooting on film. Oh, okay. You were doing film. Yeah, yeah video yeah. wasn't even yeah. really, you know, I mean, not to say it wasn't a right. thing for sure. I mean, video has been around since like, uh, like the 60s right um but like kodak invented it but but (laughs) but people weren't like really i mean the video cameras that were available people weren't using them for filmmaking they were just mostly used for like news and television productions but but not like narrative work so Mm -hmm. much you know i mean soap operas obviously they were shooting on video since like the late 70s or something but but yeah so anyway we were shooting film it wasn't and so i kind of became became a film guy like i was kind of like a a video snob <laughs> um, until you. like uh, until like uh, the DSLRs came out like in the oh, 80s or early 2000 no 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 oh, oh. so the first DSLR came out when I was in school studying photography oh, okay. and someone had um, one of the people in one of my classes he had the very first Canon DSLR it was the D1 now they have a, the one D, which is their top tier DSLR, but it was the D one back then. Now it's the one D, and it was I'm, I shit you not, it was a one megapixel camera. Wow! Um, but this guy brought in prints that he had done from this camera, and like I was like kind of blown away. You know, it was like wow, this looks like photography. And but I, you know, I didn't like I was even shooting with that small resolution. Huh? Even with that smaller resolution, yeah. I mean, it, it was small prints. Course, you know, he yeah. wasn't like doing, I was shooting like four by five, like film, you know, like four by five negatives, which you can you blow up huge and they, right. they hold their resolution. But still, like it was, you know, the quality was there, even though it was low res and it, there was like a photographic quality to it. You know, that was kind of back burner for me. Like I was still a film snob and I don't know, I guess around 2008, 2009, I bought my first DSLR. It was a, a Nikon D90. That was kind of one of their first sort of high-end prosumer digital cameras. But the thing shot video. Canon had come out with the 5D like a couple of years prior, and it shot video. And people were glomming onto this camera to, to like shoot narratives because it was like a large format sensor. I mean, not like when you 
talk large format and photography that's like not a 35 millimeter but in motion picture film terms a 35 millimeter uh, motion picture is turned the long way the negative is only as wide as the the film strip is wide with okay. stills photography the the film runs through the camera horizontally so the the height is limited by the width of the film is that the equivalent of like 70 millimeter i mean is that is uh that... pretty pretty close yeah um pretty close to to a 70 millimeter negative okay. and there were film cameras that did this uh, motion picture cameras that did this um that was called vistavision and they okay, would run I, yeah, I remember yeah that. they would run film through the through the camera horizontally and you got like what is called come to be known as full frame um and that just that's just a full stills sized 35 millimeter negative okay but so yeah, yeah this division was doing this back in i don't know i think this division came out in the 70s and yeah they ran the film through but obviously it's very expensive when you run the camera uh the film vertically through the through the camera you know every foot of film yields you know whatever it is it's like like 100 frames or something but when you turn it sideways and run it through the camera, you get like 25 frames out of a foot of film. Your costs go up by four. Mm -hmm. It's like very expensive, just like 70 millimeters, same deal. It's, right. it's like very expensive format to shoot just because of the sheer amount of footage that has to be uh, processed and printed. So you were there uh, at the cusp when movies started moving from film to digital. And that's kind of what brought me full circle. So here's the story. So I got into this filmmaking thing with my friend, Martin, and we were shooting on Super 8 and stuff. And we put together a project and we were shooting on 16 millimeter. And there was a, a film cooperative in town at that, at that time called Wiggly World. And basically it was, it was just a co-op where they would teach classes and they had equipment available for members of the co-op to use. But it was very, very loose and... They wouldn't require insurance or anything like that. And so anyway, we How many were, people took advantage of that? Oh well, yeah, well, we were one of them. Okay. But but so here's the deal. We had an accident on set and it like destroyed a very expensive lens. Oh, um, so the camera hit the ground and landed on the lens. Um, and this is um, I know you don't know, but other film people out there will know it was a it was a cook zoom lens. And. This is a very, very expensive lens. Cook makes some of the finest uh, cinema lenses, you know, on the market to this day. And I mean, the, the cost to replace a lens was like five times the budget of our entire film. <laughs> and this was on the very first day of shooting. So, so did, were you did, were you held accountable for that, or did you just take it back as, oh, I don't know why it doesn't Well, no, we were held accountable, and we had to, we had to, we had to pay for They bought a, a replacement that was a, a much lower quality Right. lens and they just they made us pay for the new lens I mean which right. we're lucky that we didn't have to that they didn't replace it with another cook the the lens, that cook lens that they had it was donated to them um, like all of their equipment was basically oh. donated to them that RFlex camera that we were shooting on was it was the only one they had and so obviously yeah the waiting list to get to, to use that that camera was you know you had to get on there and wait for a couple of months before must have you... been a bunch of really happy co-op members towards you guys well yeah we weren't popular <laughs> but so anyway it kind of like it kind of ended my whole foray into film and so like i got into shooting stills because it was like well i don't have to hire a crew I don't have to rent equipment. I can set up my own dark room and process and print the film myself. So I just became a photographer. Mm -hmm. Ended up going to school for photography. Um, and like I said, I was like a film snob until like about 2009 when I finally broke down and bought a digital camera and my photography like got better by leaps and bounds oh. immediately because oh, yeah. I could see the result of my work immediately. Whereas shooting film, I mean, there'd be at least a couple of days of time between exposing the film and actually seeing a work print of the film. You know, in some cases, maybe a week or two weeks or even a month before you'd actually see the results of, of your efforts. And so, like, for when I could see immediately right, you where, I had, on site, right? where right, I had, right. like, done good or done bad, right. you know, it's like I could immediately correct a mistake and say, oh, I see what I did wrong. 
And so, yeah, like my, like my photography just got way better immediately. So I was like kind of hooked on the digital thing at that point. So I sold all my analog gear so that I could buy a nicer <laughs> digital camera. And I bought a 7D, a Canon 7D, because it, like I said, that D90, it shot video. I started playing with that and it was like, damn, this looks like film immediately I'm like, whoa, this means I can shoot film. So you're back at it. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, and so that kind of brought me full circle, and I, and like I said, I was around 2009, and so I started getting back into digital filmmaking and sort of got more and more into it, and, and you know, I don't know, three or four years later, I, I decided that, you know, I think I want to try and make a living at this. Well, I saw that your first project that you were, you were hired for, was that 2001? Um, yeah, and that, I didn't get paid anything on that. Oh, okay. But, but um, that's like the first Your like real project, project yeah. that I that I worked on. It's a quirky little film. It was shot um, 16 millimeter black and white, and I did the lighting on that film. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. And so that's how I kind of got into that that whole world. But it was because I had some experience. I had met this guy when I was making little Super 8s with my friend Martin. I had met this guy. It was all around the same time. And that movie came out in 2001, but we started working on it in like 97 or 98 or something. So, you know, wow. it took him okay. that long right. to, finish, well, to finish the film. Oh, I get it. I, I know how long the projects take around this place. They take a long time. Yeah, well, even like big big budget films take, take a year. Years, um, yeah, sometimes. Um, yeah. And sometimes multiple years. But yeah. like even a quick turnaround... Uh, on a film that has a, a budget is is like a year. And indie films tend to take a couple of years. The fact that he got the thing out at all, um, and it's not a feature, but it's it's long, it's a long short, it's like a 30 minute okay, short right. or something. So pretty, pretty big undertaking. Right. And you know, he did all the work himself, all the post work, all, so it was just him. It takes a lot longer when you're the only guy <laughs> um, doing all that post work. Then you started doing stuff like in 19, I mean, 19, 2012 was when you, you moved to attachments and act of kindness. You were working on those projects. Was that 2012? Is that, that that's what came off? Okay. I guess that's true then. (laughs) Um, I guess that's true. That was, um, so that's when I kind of started deciding like, oh yeah, I guess it was 2012 because the very first film that I DP'd was in 2012. It didn't come out for. Like two years, <laughs> like for two so you years. So you got a 10-year gap of learning experience going on. You must have been applying yourself the whole time. Well, I was uh, producing music. I was... Okay. Uh, you mean prior to that? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was... I had my studio. I had a studio in Wedgwood. I was like producing music from 2000. I bought my very first... No, 2001, I bought my very first Pro Tools rig. And I was just... I was doing music exclusively until about that time, 2012 or so. And I started transitioning into film. I still have a studio. I was still earning my living doing audio work. But I was trying to get into the film thing. And about 2013, 2013, 2014 is when I'd said, you know what? I'm going to try and, like, make money at this. You know, actually work in film. And so I I made an earnest effort. And, like, I was starting to get gigs. Still evenly, kind of evenly split between doing audio and film work. And to this day, I still kind of evenly split between those. I, I like wear a lot of hats. It's the only way. Yeah, I can, well, I, a lot of spokes in the wheel, right? Yeah, it's the only way I can make it work. Well, it's to, a, it's to, it seems like most musicians have a lot of spokes in their wheel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From like 2000 till 2012, 13, something like that, I was pretty much exclusively working as a producer engineer. And I had a studio. I had built out a really nice studio. We were renting a house and... the <laughs> We were leasing this house and we were there for not quite 10 years, I guess for about eight years or something we were there. And I, unbeknownst to the owner of the house, I had built out a studio in this house. But I, I so I had to do it in a way that it could all be dismantled of course, when, yeah. when, we, when we moved. Uh, the landlord was very hands-off. It was an Asian woman. And she basically never came to the house. She just let up, you know, as long as we didn't call her with a problem, which I made a point of not doing. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so I just took any problems that came up, I just took care of it myself, right. you know. And to this day, I don't think she knows. And the neighbors at one point, because the neighbors would come over and complain, I'd be in there tracking like a band or something. Right, at and night. I tried not to do, I tried to keep it down at night, just knowing right. I had neighbors. I, I was mostly, like if I was tracking a band, it would, Usually be during the day. I had actually so a couple. I had um, the bass player for Bear Lake Naked Ladies came in and like did a pro like worked on a pro. They were touring, right? And he was looking for uh, he was producing a band, 
and kind of like he was there on the road and he was going from city to city just renting out studios to work on this project wow. while they were on the road and so he rented my studio out for like a week uh-huh. or something and it was kind of weird because I mean basically we lived downstairs and I had converted the whole Upstairs. main floor right. into a recording studio it was a pro- it was a point of contention with my wife uh, you know because <laughs> like I would be in there working till all hours is it and... the same wife you have right now yes it is wow yeah. she stuck it out yeah, with you she did, she did. <laughs> so I had this studio in Wedgwood built in built in a house and unbeknownst to the to the landlord and and I produced like I don't know a whole bunch of albums out of wow. there. Like I earned a whole bunch of money out of there, and I, I rented in a grand piano for a summer, and like just I, I lined up a bunch of piano-based projects back to back while I had the piano. Right. Yeah, it was a it was a lot of fun, and so I really got my producing chops down there. Prior to that, I really was just a recording engineer. I was just working as an engineer. hadn't really forayed into producing. That was part of the impetus of creating my own studio was that it would allow me to produce um, because I wouldn't have to be hiring out a studio. That's why I really don't produce so much anymore is because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And like, I don't even want to think about what my hourly wage right. would have been on any of these projects right, because it's it. like it's your name on there. Right. And so it's like you're going to put the time in to make it like great and unfortunately the level of artists that I was working with they weren't great I was having to do a lot of polishing and chipping away and shining up of projects to make them like really good I mean it's really different man working with killer players and stuff man I mean it it mixes itself I mean you know it's like pull the faders up and boom it's a record I don't regret any of it I mean I, I learned so much in Pro Tools and editing and working with people and understanding the limitations of everything and yeah I spent a good 10 years basically just like producing music and like I say at one point I sort of forayed back into the film thing so It's a it's an immersive audio format and it's been around for I want to say like ten or twelve years okay. now. Um, but it started out as a film thing, so it's like for mixing film. But it has become a thing for music now. So the thing that's unique about Atmos as opposed to other types of surround formats is that whole scalability thing I was talking about earlier. Okay. With traditional like 5.1, 7.1 surround, you have to have a 5.1 or 7.1 system in order to hear it back as it was mixed. In Atmos, basically, it's what's called object-based mixing. Rather than panning something to a speaker or between two speakers, you have a three-dimensional space, which is plotted with the Atmos algorithm, and you have audio objects that you can place anywhere within that three-dimensional space. And that's what allows it to scale to any systems. It's not based on, like, I'm panning this between the left rear surround and the, the left side surround. Right. I'm placing an object in space. If I have those speakers, then it, it'll place it precisely where it was. If I have fewer speakers, it, it, it interpolates. Wow. Um, and so, so that's the unique thing about all the way down to headphones. So they have a, a binaural right. transform that they use so that, and I don't know if since we, you know, had that first mastermind meeting, I don't know if you've had a chance to check out any asthma. No, I have uh, not, yeah. but it correlates so much to, again, to like a, a visual aspect. I mean, it's I really like, encourage you, can, you to yeah. check it out because you, you don't need a system. No, you said you can do it just off a headphone. And, and it's pretty phenomenal. That's what like kind of blew me away. I, I was listening to a, a demo on headphones um, and like right off of YouTube. So she's like, and this was during the pandemic and this whole thing was like, um, she's like an Atmos engineer 
who was like working from home. And she's like, look, you can do this at home on headphones. And she did a demo and she said, okay, I'll pan this, you know, to the left, to the left ear. I'll pan it to the right ear. And then she said, now I'll, I'll pan it in Atmos. And I'm not shitting you. I had to take the headphones off because it sounded like it was coming from the wall. Like it was coming from outside of the headphones. Yeah. And it was like, what the fuck? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and no, it's like in the headphones. But wow. I mean, like, I, I mean, that's kind of the effect of it. It's just like, it's just like, no, you, you would swear there's a speaker over there. I, I, I've done, I've done that with delay on my near field. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, that's uh, binaural, by bi- using binaural right. um, uh, techniques. Anyway, there's a term. It has a lot to do with time delays. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's the whole, the whole, the headphone transfer function. That it's all based on that because you know it takes a certain amount of time from a sound on the right. left side or the right side to get to the opposite right. ear, and it's also got to go around your face. And in the process of that happening, depending on the frequency, like low frequencies tend to wrap around things, uh, high frequencies get blocked by things. There's a fall off in the frequency that's like created by the shape of your head. So anyway, they've they've it's an evolving thing too. But they have engineers and scientists that have been working on it for like twenty years. Oh. Uh, psychoacoustics—that's the there term I was go. looking for. Yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. like you can apply psychoacoustic principles to stereo mixing, and right. it's all about like just delaying and EQing the sound that on the, in the left and right speaker right. to create the the psychoacoustic effect right. of of a three dimensional space. Um, and obviously, binaural literally uses a dummy head. Mm-hmm. Um, binaural recording so that like which could be arguing is my head <laughs> well anyway <laughs> so Apple um, with their AirPod Pros actually when you set the things up the, the, the AirPods you take a, a 3D scan of your face on, with your iPhone they then use the actual shape of your face to, to customize the AirPods for your head shape specifically for listening to surround well, now that's why they cost 300 bucks I got it yeah, yeah. yeah but I mean wow. and they, tra- they have head tracking too so that which is pretty phenomenal actually I don't usually ha- I usually have it turned off like I'll use it for movies because it, it just like I'll, I'll watch movies with my yeah. Apple TV and you can turn you can watch them with headphones in Atmos when you turn your head away from from the television it's like the sound changes the sound field to, changes. to reflect yeah. where you're looking wow and it like it like really really creates a realistic effect of that you're sitting in front of real speaker like like i sometimes have to say wait a minute are the speaker like like i usually do that at night when my wife's sleeping mm-hmm. and i'll be watching a movie so i'll i'll put my ear- airpods in <laughs> turn on the atmos and i swear the first couple of times i did it i had to take them out because I thought, no, the speakers must be on. <laughs> and it's like, no, they're not. And what that was just right trip. off of your iPhone. Um, yeah, off your iPhone wow. or, or in this case, the Apple TV. Right. Amazon streams in Atmos. Tidal streams in Atmos. I'm pretty sure Spotify is doing Atmos now. It doesn't have to be an iPhone. If, you're, if it's Apple Music, then I don't think that's available on anything but Apple products. They're still pretty proprietary. Yeah. I when mean, I, well, when, when there's I, another company that like historically didn't sell software. I guess they really still don't. They're, they sell hardware, which is bundled with software. Yeah. What I hate about what they're doing right now is that that mixes I have created, they require me to be on their subscription service so I could pick so, it up. Oh, yeah. Well, that's you, cool. you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. screw you, Apple. Yeah. Take, uh, that's why I stopped subscribing to you. Yeah, and I totally, <laughs> I totally get the... I, I understand the whole gripe against Apple. That, Just for me, for what I do and the world I'm living in, I, I just put up with it because um, the well, benefits. Well, obviously, I, I put up with it too. Everything I have is a man. Right, right. So. <laughs> 
can't live with them, can't live without them, you know. Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite lines. Love that. So where are you heading with your business? What's going on? You've got a, you've got your current project coming up. Yeah, I'm just, I, I'm not sure. I'm just, um, I'm, I'm trying to do more work out of my studio. And so that's kind of my focus is I'm trying to bring in more work into my studio as opposed to me going outside of the studio for work. And so that, that looks like a lot of things. It's like the, the, my areas of focus right now are really on the Atmos mixing for film and music and the color work that's that's kind of you know i do editing and stuff i don't call myself an editor because i'm slow i wouldn't want to like like try and promote myself as an editor because right. you know it, it it would be like the producing music thing right, right. you know I, I couldn't possibly bill for all of the hours that I, absolutely <laughs> I, you know, I, editing uh, is really time consuming um, but yeah, so and, and the color thing, I just I really love it. Just it really um, it hits a lot. It ticks a lot of boxes for right. me. Well, that's kind of that's kind of my focus right now is the the Atmos and, and the color work. Well, you're still uh, completely available. Go out and do video shoots, right? You've got, oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no, that, that's I mean, yeah. as far as the studio goes. Right. Uh, but yeah, I like um, I'm also you know like I, I'm a I'm a DP for hire and, and a gaffer for hire. Um, those are things that I, I really enjoy doing, like on on production on on set. You know, right. is, is the lighting and the camera work definitely things that I that I do. Um, Sounds like your garage is a warehouse of equipment. My garage is a disaster right now because from building from building out my studio over the yeah. last few years, uh, um, we literally have a dumpster arriving next Thursday really? because we're okay. we're gonna dig into the garage and, okay. and um, we're trying to get that uh, squared away because my wife is an encaustic artist. And, oh yeah, um, and which is kind of takes up a lot of space and is cool, a messy yeah. it's a messy art form and it requires tools and so she's she, anxious for you to clear that thing she, out she is yeah so, <laughs> so she's been on me for a couple of years to get it squared away so we're actually finally starting in on that next week so um hopefully you know by the end of the summer i'm gonna have a like a and it's a it's a detached garage it's like 750 square feet it's yeah. like it's a big big it's, space so. right you know, I'm going to set my drum kit up out there, and I have a little PA, and, and you know, hopefully, maybe get you guys over to jam. Or oh, something. would love to come over and um, jam. And you know, you play, and you play keys too, right? I do. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not a virtuoso no. uh, on anything, but right. I can, I can play. Yeah. You know. So have you? Uh, we, I think we talked about it a little bit before. That's right, Jack Tripp. Jack Tripp, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you taken a look at that? I, you know, I haven't. I. I kind of checked out um, their website right. a little bit, and but it's like I got so many other things going on right Amen, now. I yeah. just you know. So now you're you're developing your website. Yeah, so it's it's up and and live. Uh, there's not much there right now. It's just more or less kind of a blurb about what I do, mm -hmm. um, and you know ways to to get in contact with me. You know. And but uh, it, it'll be a work in progress over the summer. Uh, got it, you know. got it. So are you okay with people getting in touch with you through that? Absolutely, right yeah. And what's the website? Um, it's uh, Free Electron Media is the company, and so it's just freeelectronmedia, one word, uh, .com. Perfect. Right on. And so the telephone contacts there, yep. as well as your email address? Yep, email, uh, Facebook, uh, you know, all the usual, all the usual yeah. uh, contact. Yeah, so I, I always I always like to ask this question: What's the most What's the most important thing to you right now in, in your life? What is the most important thing that you can think of that means the most to you? Uh, I have to say, my wife. Yeah, she's been incredibly supportive of me over the years. Evidently, um, and, and um, yeah, she's the most important thing in my life for sure. Right behind that is like you know what I'm doing with my studio. Right. So, and and like film work is like something that really just turns me on it both on set and in post so well this is super cool uh, well guy i want to thank you for coming here today yeah absolutely thanks uh, for having me maybe at some point we do this again absolutely i'm yeah totally down yeah, yeah. well we'll uh we'll, we'll see how the ball rolls on that so cool. anyway uh thanks again for coming in uh, this was like an amazing <laughs> An amazing conversation. Uh, I actually would have loved to sit here and gone another hour or two just. I know I could, I could have yeah, easily. Yeah. I know you gave me talking about shit I'm into. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> I can talk and talk. I'm, like, I'm, I'm pretty like I'm, I'm pretty like introverted, really. Uh -huh. But well, like, I, if, yeah, you get me on a, if you get me on if you get me onto a subject that I'm like into, yeah. and it's like I I can kind of take over a little bit. Yeah, so. I, I I didn't notice any bit of introvert yeah, yeah. going on at all 
with you. So, yeah, man. Hey, well, thanks a lot for taking the time for coming over here. I'm really looking forward to releasing this. Yeah. This is, this is super awesome. Hey, you want more mac and cheese? Mac and cheese music dot blog on YouTube at Brian at Mac and Cheese www.macandcheese.com and thank you anchor.fm for hosting this podcast take it away bruno does anybody really know what time it is does anybody really care <laughs>